the state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at an historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laugh as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Let's hear it for our super producer, Mr. Max Williams. Ahoy, hoy. Ahoy, hoy, indeed. Uh, they call me Ben, your Noel. And Noel, I don't know about you, man, but my voice might sound a bit rough today. Uh, we were out pretty late for a school night because we released a book. We did release a book and we did an event uh, wherein we spoke to the public, uh, a lovely gathering of folks at our local bookshop, Eagle Eye Books Indicator. The truth is out there in the form of a book called Stuff They Don't Want You To Know. It shares the name with the other podcasts you and I do with our buddy Matt. Uh, and you can now get this book wherever books are sold, online or in stores. And there's also an audio book, too, that we read. But yeah, I'm with you. Um, I'm a little husky myself. Now I don't mean big boned. <laughs> but we are not going to let, uh, we're not going to let a little bit of scratchy throatness stop us uh, because, you know, there are some things that are so important. You want to pursue them regardless of your life circumstances. There are people who have even run for the presidency while incarcerated. Uh, today, we are going to dive into the story of an amazing historical figure who uh, may be unfamiliar to a lot of our fellow ridiculous historians. It's a guy named Eugene V. Debs, or Gene to his friends. That's right, Gene. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, the uh, familiar. Uh, I like that. It just sounds like 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 a guy you'd meet around the pub, Gene. Um, he was, in fact, uh, early in his career uh, in politics, the leader of something called the Brotherhood of Locomotive Firemen. This is just, so this is specifically firemen that put out f locomotive fires. 
No, or, they or, start uh, the fires. Yeah. Ah, uh, yes. So it's sort of a Fahrenheit 451 situation. Got it. We'll clarify that somewhere along the way. Uh, but he was a absolutely instrumental figure in the modern, what we know today as kind of the modern labor movement. Uh, he went on to help found the American Railway Union and the Socialist Party of America. So our boy uh, Bernie, to his friends, would probably also be intimately familiar with this fellow and think quite highly of him. He also went on to form the Industrial Workers of the World. He really is an important figure in, um, you know, the idea of uh, of fair uh, treatment of of laborers uh, and you know workers and a, uh, a proponent of you know lessening wage disparities and all of that kind of stuff. Um, one of the more important figures of the 20th century uh, in that respect. He also ran for president on the U.S. Uh, Socialist Party ticket five times between the years 1900 and 1920 and amassed significant numbers of votes. Uh, spoiler alert, he never actually you know, won the presidency, but um, it was an inspiring uh, case just the same. Mm-hmm. Now, let's learn a little bit about Debs. So Gene is born in Indiana in 1855. Terre Haute. Side note here, seven years uh, after Guys named Marx and Engels published something called the Communist Manifesto. I also, speaking of shout outs, I want to shout out uh, Mr. Max Williams again, who is also our research associate for this episode. So thank you, Max. Mm. Big fan. Yeah. Uh, so, indeed. <laughs> yeah, so, Debs. Debs is uh, kind of a scarecrow looking dude. He's tall, he's lanky, and uh, <laughs> according to Max, he's lanky like a noodle. He is a big gesticulator. He talks with his hands often, and he is an electric orator. People are into it because his passion is contagious. And he actually didn't spend a lot of time in academia. I think now in 2022, there is a stereotype people sometimes have about folks who describe themselves as socialists. You think maybe they are a bit bookish. You think maybe they're a bit professorial. Uh, he's none of those things. He actually left school at the age of 14 to work on the railroads, which would lead him to some of those organizations we mentioned just a moment ago. Uh, he got he started scraping off paint and grease. You know, uh, it's it's an entry level job. And then oh, yeah. he eventually was promoted to fireman, which in this case, jokes aside, it doesn't mean you're setting trains on fire. That'd be a weird job for a railroad to give people. It meant mm -hmm. that you were in the locomotive, you're next to the engineer, and you're the guy who shovels coal uh, to power the vehicle. So if you can imagine, quite back-breaking labor. Uh, if not breaking, definitely uh, a lot of hunching going on. Not great for your posture. Uh, and, um, you know, a, a position that could easily be exploited um, with, you know, low pay, long hours, all of that stuff. Um, this is an individual who would uh, shovel as much as two tons of coal in an hour's time in order to keep that uh, that fire lit and that train a-chugging. These were, in fact, brutal hours, uh, very unforgiving, 16-hour days, only one day off a week, inhaling 
lots of, you know, gnarly substances, lots of cold dust, um, mm-hmm. you know, eyes uh, and, and lungs being choked by the smoke coming off of this thing. And also very, very, very dangerous because these engines could become overheated and uh, there could be, you know, explosions. I mean, these were combustion engines. Also, you know, it was something that had to be con- continuous, this ongoing shoveling, or else the engine could stall and that could be disastrous for the payload uh, and, and, and everyone aboard. I mean, it could really, you know, mm-hmm. be cause, cause a crash. Yeah, just so. I mean, this is an issue that uh, the the issue of working conditions in the rails is uh, remains a problem in the modern day. Uh, you, if you are in the U.S., you have probably heard a lot of the news about how close the rail industry came to a full strike. Uh, and this, like this description, is accurate. People are still working very long hours without many opportunities for a day off. Uh, We also want to shout out, by the way, an excellent article Max found from The New Yorker, Eugene V. Debs and the Endurance of Socialism by Jill Lepore. So thank you so much, Lepore. This is already a tough job, but it's a job, right? He is being productive. He's making money until the Depression occurs in 1873. This is not the Great Depression. This is another depression. There are a lot of depressions in history. Uh, So Debs has to find a job. He's a regular guy. He's got bills. Uh, He gets some work as a clerk at a grocery store, and he never goes back to the railroad as an employee of the rail, but his experiences there will go on to shape the rest of his life. He has firsthand experience with railroad work. He supports the cause of railroad workers who want more rights. And because of all this, when the Brotherhood of Locomotive Firemen start a chapter there in Indiana in 1875, he signs up. And despite not, you know, working for the railroad, he is elected secretary. Right, which uh, may seem like a menial task, but it really is someone that's responsible for a lot of the organizational aspects and probably knows the inner workings of an organization more than just about anybody, wouldn't you say, Ben? I would say that's pretty accurate. And we can already tell he's a committed, sharp learner. His learning curve must be crazy. So while he is not currently working uh, with the rails now, not too much has changed, unfortunately, right? So he is still speaking from a relevant experience. Uh, The first real national strike in U.S. history occurs with the railroads in 1877. By the way, if you're doing the math at home here, folks, Gene is only 22 when this strike occurs, And he galvanizes the crowd at the Brotherhood's annual convention with this electric speech. And he says, you know, the message is primarily that the union is not doing anything wrong. The union is not the enemy that the that the powers of the day want to paint it as. They're not trying to encourage lawlessness. They don't wake up every day excited to hold a strike. They're just trying to get more rights for their workers. This means that after the strike, Debs remains popular. In fact, he's the only officer in that Indiana Lodge who gets reelected 
Uh, he also becomes the associate editor of the Locomotive Fireman's Magazine in 1878, and he continues to rise through, through the organization. He becomes the Grand Secretary Treasurer and then also editor-in-chief of the magazine in 1880. I love this idea. He was already the secretary. Now he's the Grand Secretary Treasurer. I wonder if he was just so good at his job that they created a new position for him, because I've certainly never heard of that before. Um, but also, obviously, you know, with his input in the magazine, he's kind of starting to help shape the public-facing. I mean, you know, again, this isn't exactly something that everyone's going to grab. This is more for industry folks and, you know, folks that are associated with the, with the union. But it is a magazine is going to kind of be a way of crafting policy in sort of like the more public-facing, communicative kind of like aspect of an organization. So he obviously was seen as a really, really powerful communicator and and that sort of reflected in some of these jobs that he was given at such an early age. Um, he starts to enter into a broader kind of politics during the 1880s as he continued to give these speeches, just talking about, uh, you know, how important it was for industries to cooperate with one another and to discourage a lot of this infighting um, that I think was maybe the kind of thing that uh, the, the bosses, you know, the big bosses and the, you know, corporate bigwigs wanted to see happen. It's like, let's pit these folks against each other instead of having them see who the real villains are, which is, you know, us. I'll jump in here real quick. I was just curious when you guys were reading about the Locomotive Fireman's Magazine. I'm like, I wonder if you can still get a copy of that. And yes, you can. Uh, oh, you finally. On. Yeah. I don't know. It seems like a real page turner. And it seems probably very pertinent to the day. Yes. Yeah, I love it. This episode is brought to you by the Fireman's Magazine. We're kidding, uh, as far as we know. Yeah, yeah. Peek behind our ridiculously expensive podcast curtain. We don't always know which ads are going to play. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. 
That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car. I'd get that car. And I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac, yeah. Bonneville. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, I said El Camino <laughs> and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. It, it still was like, uh, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man, and funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. We know, like you're saying, Noel, that Debs is seeing himself as a champion of the common person, right? And he is aware that he has the ability to shape ideology. And he tries to work within the system for a bit. For quite a long time, he has disavowed socialism. And he's saying, okay, let's uh, focus on democracy, the franchise or the vote. Let's see what we can do with the two-party system. He says, the conflict is not between capital and labor. It is between the man who holds the office and the man who holds the ballot. However, as the 1880s grind on, more and more railroad workers are going on strike or they're getting maimed or they're dying because it's a dangerous job. Uh, something like 2,000 railroad employees a year are killed on the job. Another 20,000, 20,000 are injured. And this starts to make him wonder the exact point you brought up. Like, maybe these corporations that are backed up by corrupt politicians and armed fighters, maybe they're the real enemy. 
That's right. And this all kind of coalesced or came to a head uh, during a strike that lasted an entire year beginning in 1886 um, that was pitted against the Chicago, Burlington and Quincy Railroad Company. During this time, you know, Debs really started to look a little bit closer and started to see that perhaps these corporations weren't truly committed to industrial cooperation and the idea of democracy, um, the idea of, you know, uh, the power resting with the the people, the employees. He also thought that um, up to this point, unions had kind of been organized more specifically along trade lines, like, you know, you'd have a railroad fireman's union, as we know, uh, the locomotive fireman's union, etc., or perhaps the uh, conductor's union, you know, whatever it might be. Um, he felt in order to truly get what we now refer to as things like collective bargaining, you have to have strength in numbers. So you have to organize along broader kind of industrial lines rather than breaking out all of these spe- specific unions that maybe in and of themselves weren't going to have enough bargaining power to get the job done. 100%. Uh, If you have caught our earlier episode on the Luddites or on the emergence of unions in stuff they don't want you to know, then you'll see that this problem has existed before. Like It's the difference between having one union for milliners, a separate union for lace makers, and a different union for the people who dye the fabric. Why not just have them all be the union of fabric workers, right? Or the the union of clothing. Uh, So this, he's on to something here, you know. Uh, A strike requires numbers to work. And he understands that the strike is the weapon of the oppressed. We know he understands that because he wrote that. That's a quote from him in 1888. And he still didn't talk about socialism at this point. Now, for some of us in the audience, that may sound like, ah, this guy is a dyed-in-the-wool socialist. Uh, But to him, he prefers the term Americanism. And Hmm. he says this, he he makes a good point that I, I don't think a lot of people realize. He says, essentially, that the American Revolution, the United States, is kind of founded on something like a strike. It was the lawmakers, the residents of the colonies who said, okay, we're not going to work for you anymore, United Kingdom. Uh, and then he starts like uh, adding up adding up the uh, amount of money that very wealthy people have versus the amount of money that common people have. And he sees yeah. uh, some startling discrepancies. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, it's, unfortunately, it's not like this has uh, changed too much today. The the sums have just gotten bigger and and more disparate. But um, this is almost like it's, this is like a, the nerdiest joke you could imagine, but also really tells a very stark story. He did some math um, about how Cornelius Vanderbilt, uh, the grandson rather of Cornelius Vanderbilt, started out with two million bucks, a million from his grandfather and another million from his father. And he went on to say, if a locomotive fireman could work 4,444 years, 300 days each year at $1.50 per day, he would be in a position to bet Mr. Vanderbilt two fifty that all men are born equal. Boom. Punchline. Uh, 
Also, I want to point out, uh, so this doesn't slip by anybody, 300 days each year. So even in this example, he, uh, Debs is saying everybody needs at least two months off. He also acts on this, right? He's a man of action. So he resigns from his posh position as Grand Secretary Treasurer, which paid 4000 a year in 1893. And he is organizing something else, the American Railway Union. Hey, Ben, I got a question for you. Yeah. Should we inflation calculate that number? Let's do it, Max. Let's make it happen. What a wonderful idea. It's true, folks. We are running the inflation calculator. $4,000 a year in 1893 was $131,631.56. So a pretty healthy sum of money, right? To live by. I think a lot of people say this guy's making the equivalent of six figures. He's hopefully not sweating his light bill. But there's something more important than money to him. It's the idea of making a more inclusive labor movement, right? A more inclusive union. So if you want to join the BLF, you have to be a locomotive fireman. So what if you're not that? What if you uh, have another job, another skill? Well, now you can join the American Railway Union. You just have to somehow be employed with the rails. He also uh, stepped down from his job as the editor of Locomotive Fireman's Magazine. I imagine this, you know, just kind of, it was a time thing, but I think he also was more interested in the bigger picture and uh, was less concerned with the, you know, specificity of that uh, magazine. You know, kind of like, again, that was a very kind of exclusionary, you know, specific um, area of this whole conversation just around Locomotive Fireman. In 1894, the Pullman Company, which was uh, founded by George Pullman, who's another railroad magnate, um, they specifically manufactured sleeping cars. There was a strike uh, at that company because the company itself would not negotiate with the American Railway Union. Uh, Officials uh, called for boycott of the uh, specific cars across the industry and asked that other railroad unions in solidarity back them up with this boycott mm-hmm. and, and refuse to work on trains that contained these uh, sleeping cars. So that really does show the power here, you know, in numbers. And there was widespread support, but it also shows the equal and opposite power, if not at, at right. times, you know, greater power of the industry itself, of the magnates themselves. The railroads convinced President Grover Cleveland to send in troops to actually force an injunction against interfering with um, the U.S. mails. They figured out like a weird kind of workaround. This is all being reported by the AFL-CIO website, which has fabulous uh, information on the history of the labor movement. So this led to a collapse of, of uh, of the strike. Yeah, it turns out that maybe one of the first unions was the oligarchy, right? (laughs) The the very well-to-do, the plutocrats of the world. So not only does the strike collapse, but the leaders of the ARU, including Debs, get arrested, 
on conspiracy charges and they get sent to jail uh, for around six months. Deb's time in jail is going to sound surprising to a lot of us in the audience today. He's not doing bad. He's running the union office out of his jail cell. And if he wants to go out of his jail cell, he's allowed to do so. He can leave the joint on like an honor system. And he is talking to a reporter for the New York World named Nellie Bly, maybe familiar to some folks, uh, amazing journalist at the time. She went to interview him and he said, quote, the other night I had to lock myself in. There was no, and she goes on to write, there was no sign of the prisoner about Mr. Deb's clothes. He wore a well-made suit of gray tweed, the coat being a cutaway, and a white starched shirt with a standing collar and a small black and white scarf tied in a bow knot. This guy essentially is being, um, is forced to live in what feels like an apartment building at this point. For anyone not familiar with the U.S. incarceration system, it is kind of extraordinary that you're able to leave and then come back. The closest thing there is to that in the modern version is a work release program. But he's not on that. He could just come and go if he wants. Debs starts kind of a book club thanks to a socialist from Milwaukee named Victor Berger. He brings him a copy of Das Kapital by Karl Marx and Debs and his organizers, who were also in the joint with him, they spend most of their time reading. If you like books, this sounds like uh, actually kind of cool. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah. Um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool, I, yeah. I, I just remember, it was my dad's. I, I was a hand-me-down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car. And I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something, you know? I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac, yeah. Bonnevilles. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, <laughs> I said El Camino and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. But it, it still was like, uh, 
a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now. Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, it's interesting, Ben, we talked about doing this a book event for the Stuff They Don't Want You to Know book, and one of the questions that came up in the audience was about books in prison. It was, it was about the popularity specifically of a book called Pale Pale Horse, or here comes, a, I see, what's that book called, Ben? Uh, Beyond a Pale Horse, Behold a Pale Horse. Correct, yeah. And just now that, that was a very popular book, and just the topic of reading in prison came up, and the idea of kind of being caught in a system like that, that is uh, part and parcel of a greater conspiracy to, you know, essentially incarcerate people and and, and force them into slavery, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. there's, there's, there's no two ways about it. Even to this day, um, you know, the U.S. Uh, justice, <laughs> ironically named justice system, uh, is a, a form of, of enforced slave labor. You know, I mean, like yeah. license plates are made by prison labor and uh, a lot of industries outsource labor to prisons. So to mm -hmm. be part of that, especially, you know, you're you're a person like Debs who is, is – um, a righteous person who is uh, supporting a cause, who is not a criminal, you know, who, who is not out there causing chaos in the streets or, or, or causing any kind of harm, um, has been incarcerated clearly because he uh, is espousing a view that the powers that be do not like. What better way to empower someone like that than to have them kind of smack dab in the middle of this system that they're fighting against, seeing all of the injustices and then arm them with literature? Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up because uh, when we were asked that question at our book release, I spent a lot of time in the answer. I had volunteered in the past. I mean, your phrase is great. I agree with everything you're saying. It's a lot of what we were saying last night. 
When I volunteered in the past with prison literacy programs or jail uh, literacy programs, depending on where you're at, it's very it can be very difficult to get books in if they're not religious works. There are a lot of rules about this because people know that words have power, right? Thoughts can be weaponized. There's an alchemy that uh, takes you from the page to actions. It's amazing stuff, and there are um, there are a lot of good things that come from literacy, but sometimes they're not good things for the powers that be, the status quo. Uh, so it is a it is a little surprising that they were able to get a copy of Das Kapital in in this in this prison, but this. Uh, I don't know. Now it depends on your political perspective. Some people who object to socialism might say that this radicalizes our boy Gene because he says, I had heard but little of socialism before the Pullman strike. And he says the reading he did in jail is what converted him to become one of the most famous socialists in U.S. history. Exactly. But, yeah, but it's not clear really um how that how that change of heart happened because he was speaking to a commission about the strike earlier that year and he said I don't call myself a socialist also I want to point out the president and these powerful rail companies they put him away, they conspired to put Debs and his crew away on conspiracy charges I don't know feels like a cover up to me so uh he uh he also has socialists who are trying to court him, get him further on board with the cause, and he turns them away. I got to say, though, I got to say, well, before he gets out in 1895, and, and Max, I know this is this is like your boy. You actually call him Max's daddy in the outline. I do. You do. You do, sir. Uh, do we think... Do we think that Debs is being sincere when he's eschewing socialism, or do we think he's kind of like trying to be the good kid so he can get out of jail? You know what I mean? I mean, I think that his view of socialism is not the same. Was not the same as like he would look at like Marx and stuff like that. He's like, I like some of these concepts, but I don't agree with it all because you know, at this point of his career and his organizing, he was had been pretty pro-capitalistic for most most of the time. I mean, he was against strikes for a long period of time. I think he saw this communist movement. He's like, I like some of these ideas, especially the protection for the workers, but I don't like this all the way. I think he was like very much like, I like kind of being in the middle. I don't like being all the way to one side or all the way to the other. I, like, I think we should use some of these things. And spoiler, I think a lot of this, a lot of stuff did end up becoming part of this country, like social security. Yeah. And, I think that's kind of where he was. I don't think he was, I think it's easy, especially people who are against his ideas to paint him as like, Oh, you're all the way over there. You're just the same as Lenin and Marx and all those guys, which I, but I just, I don't think he was that. I think he believed in these concepts and he was much more middle of the road than people want to paint him as. Uh, yes. Yes. Agreed. And can I, I, I want to pull out one of my favorite quotations from Gene. It's one that I agree with wholeheartedly he has this quote where he says, I am for socialism because I am for humanity. Money constitutes no proper basis of civilization. 
Oh, that's true. Like that. It right? is, it yeah. is true. It's, like, it's it, like you always say, Ben, money is a cult or religion in and of itself. And again, sorry to keep bringing up stuff that I want you to know, but we have an episode coming out about the Silurian age or the idea of like a lost epoch, you know, of interdimensional perhaps, or just like at least extra galactic civilizations that may have achieved industrialization before we did. And the idea of economy comes up and the idea of like what industrialization means comes up. And um, I think we all were kind of on the same page in terms of like the economy is in some ways kind of the nasty byproduct of humanity, of civilization. And it causes all of these toxic problems that then beget more problems, you know? Um, there could very well be a civilization that just is adapted to sustain itself and isn't about all this kind of competition and all of this like othering and uh, things that require forming unions and making sure people aren't exploited. A hundred percent, yeah. And this... uh it just hit me, you guys, Noel, Max. Gene would totally have a podcast. He oh, would have been yeah. podcasting from jail. <laughs> yeah, and it would be such a like a low-tech podcast, too. Like he might oh, record yeah. it on a computer microphone and stuff, and it, it'd have like a like a million like millions of listens, but he would just like scream into a computer microphone for hours on end. Unedited too, it'd just be straight to tape. He's one of those guys who gets the veins when he's really in his forehead when he's talking about stuff. He's actually low-key famous for that. But uh, but he is not spouting gobbledygook. And despite not having a podcast, he decides that he is going to get involved with politics. And as you might be able to tell by a subtle turn in the sound design, this is a two-parter. We are only, uh, we've only gone about halfway, not even halfway, uh, through our journey with Eugene V. Debs. We're getting to some really startling, exciting stuff. And uh, Noel, I got to say, I know... Sometimes we don't want to have a two-parter that publishes on Thursday and comes out on Tuesday, but I think this one's going to be worth the wait. Yeah, it is. And honestly, it's, 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 pretty modular. The guy's got like a storied career and a lot of the moments in his life that we're talking about are really just kind of representative of moments in the history of the labor movement. And I think it is uh, appropriate to kind of make it a little more bite-sized. And you know, you and I uh, have been uh, kind of slamming away over the last few weeks between promoting this book that we talked about and in these podcasts out the door. So I think we owe it to ourselves to, to make this one a two-parter and, and let it hit the weekend. But we'll be back on Tuesday with part two of Eugene Debs. Uh, we're also, I will I will reference a, a Eugene Debs impersonator uh, on the internet Ooh. that I learned quite a bit about uh, Debs' later life from. Oh, yes. Yeah, we'll do the reference in part two. I'll reference the reference in part one and do the actual reference in part two, correct? There we go. Okay, as long as we have our order of operations reference-wise. Uh, before we turn into a reference work podcast, we are going to call it a day. Thank you so much to our super producer, the one and only Mr. Max Williams. Thank you as well to our research associate, Mr. Max Williams, and to, while we're doing the Williams kick, uh, Alex Williams, who composed this banging track, and Zach Williams are one half of our research associate team. Christopher Hasiotis here in spirit. Thanks to you. He's Jeff Coates, as always, out in the world doing amazing things. Uh, Jonathan Strickland, the quizster, you 
dashing monster. We, we love and miss you, and we'll see you very, very soon. Hopefully your uh, shadow will darken our doorstep before long, or also please just never, never come again. Um, he also, he got stranded on a cruise ship. He no was way. lost at sea for a little while. That's a true story. He's back now, so if you're hearing this, Quister, uh, stay safe. Uh, also, big thanks to Jeff Bartlett, who uh, recently appeared on the show to tell us about the Michelin Man. That's a research associate and friend of ours. Let's see. Thanks to Gene V. Debs. Why are we saying thank you? There was a little bit of a spoiler in part one, but but you'll see why, why in part two. You don't have to agree with him, but there are some things you should thank him for if you live in the United States. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.